Let's pray together one more time. Father, our heart's desire is that our lives will be a sacrifice of praise to you, whether we live or whether we die. And that to that end, you would enable us to say from the bottom of our hearts, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, this would be an unstoppable force of young people in the world if every one of them counted death gain. Nothing can stop a person for whom death is gained. Nothing. No visa problems. No closed countries. No sicknesses and diseases can stop the mission of a person so ravished by the eternal promise of Jesus that he or she counts death gain. So I'm asking for a miracle, Lord, that the value structure contradicted by virtually every advertisement on television would be exploded and destroyed and replaced by the value structure of Christ and the Apostle Paul and the writers of the Bible. Would you come and do what no human words can do and invert the universe? I pray in Jesus' name. I've tried to argue that God is on a mission to manifest his glory in creation and in all that he does. And I've tried to argue that joining him in his global cause of self-glorification is not loss, but gain. So that God's passion for his glory and your passion to be happy are not on a collision course but in fact come to realization in harmony as you take delight in Him. The way you glorify a fountain, I said last night, for those of you who were there, the way you glorify an inexhaustible, self-sufficient, all-satisfying fountain of life is by lying down and putting your face in the water and drinking and enjoying and being satisfied and then standing up and in the strength that that fountain gives pointing other people to it. That's the way you glorify a fountain. And therefore God's pursuit of his glory in your life is the most loving thing he could possibly do. That seems to be the hardest thing as I've listened to questions that students are having to handle having difficulty getting a handle on. 
If God is the most all-satisfying reality in the universe, the most loving thing he can do is point you to himself. I don't know how to say it any more simple. I'll say it again. If God is the most all-satisfying reality in the universe, the most loving thing he can do is point you to himself. God, you do the rest. I don't know what else to say. But I do know something else to say. I'm going to say it for the next 20 minutes or so. Last summer, some of you know, maybe some of you were there. In Pretoria, South Africa, there was the second Jokowi Global Congress on World Evangelization. 4,000 or so missions-minded people from around the world gathered to contemplate, strategize, pray toward finishing the Great Commission and reaching all the remaining unreached peoples of the world. And they took the Joshua Project list of 1,739 people groups, the most unreached peoples in the world, into that conference to pray over them and strategize over them. These are people groups. These are ethno-linguistic entities of 10,000 or more people where there is not even a beginning of a church planting strategy, no missionaries, nobody there doing anything to name Christ or gather the elect unto him. Nobody. They came out of Jokowi with 579 yet to be targeted. That was a glorious thing God did there. So at least at the end of Jokowi, 97, there still remained 579 major, not minor, but major unreached people groups with no mission agency even targeting them. Now, the question we close with is what will it cost to finish that? What will it cost for those all to be at least penetrated, the church planted, the gospel spread, and people directed to the all-satisfying God through Jesus Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. What will that cost? That's my question this morning. And if you have your Bibles, again, I'm going to dig them out. You can look with me at a key verse. It will be in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 24, and uh, I'll read, I think, 24 through 27 of Colossians. Now I rejoice, this is Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings. He's a very strange person, I admit. And if things that I have been saying sound strange, nothing is stranger than those words. All right? This is a strange book. This is a very strange book. This book is from heaven. Of course, it doesn't fit the world. You are called 
to be heavenly minded people who are aliens and exiles in Wheaton, Illinois. In Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and India and Uzbekistan and Bangkok. You're not called to fit in. Your gospel isn't supposed to make sense. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to get people's brains fixed from the fall. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, or you could translate that, nations, how great among the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The message of the Apostle Paul among the nations was not just Jews, but Gentiles can have Christ in them, the hope of the glory of God. That's the gospel. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare among the nations His glory. That's the gospel. That's the message that we take. Because the glory of God is the only thing that will satisfy the human soul and therefore the only loving thing you can do for the nations is to join God in directing them to the all-satisfying glory of God. That's the only thing you can do. And since they're all sinners, they will never, ever be able to stand in the presence of the glory of God without being consumed unless they know Jesus who loved them and gave himself for them. Now, the verse I want to focus on is verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings and for your sake, you Gentiles that I've now been part of gathering into the body of Christ. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, I don't think it means the atoning worth of the sufferings of Christ are defective. And I must now make up the defect in the atoning merit and worth of the sufferings of Jesus. That's heresy, of course. Well, what does it mean? I complete in my sufferings, in my sufferings to reach the nations, I am completing what is missing, lacking, in the afflictions that Jesus endured. Now, 
Here's the way I go about answering a question like that. I look in my Greek text at the words, and I ask myself about this completing what is lacking. Husterima, lack, is hapax, ant, anaplerao. Any place else, there's something like that in the... So you type it into your computer and you look for these words. There's only one other verse in the New Testament where those two words come together or a form of the two words come together. And if you want to look at it with me, I'm making a case for an interpretation of verse 24 now. It's got huge implications for your life. You better check it out. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 30 is where the parallel is found. Hope you get your Greek texts out. There are about a hundred of you, at least, who can handle this, I think, or more from what I've talked to Scott about. Or maybe that's just how many that are in the classes now. So maybe it's a lot more than that. So you need to check me out on this. Let me give you the situation. You know this, but Philippi loved Paul. Paul loved Philippi. He's in Rome. They want to send him some money. And so they uh, send it by Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus almost dies on his way to Rome. And... Uh, Paul tells them that when he comes back, they should receive him because he nobly and wonderfully completed what was lacking. Sound familiar? Galatians 1, 24. He completed what was lacking. I'll read it here. This is verse 30. He came close to death. Philippians 2, 30. He came close to death. For the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Ana pleirose ta humon husterima compared to ant ana pleirota husterimata. So even if you don't know Greek, you can hear the parallel and I'm trying to motivate you to learn Greek. Everybody at Wheaton ought to learn Greek. I mean, of all the schools in the nation, you ought to learn Greek. Every capable layperson, and you're not uncapable or you wouldn't be here, can learn Greek. And what a golden opportunity to spend time at Wheaton, taking two or three semesters so that you can do what I'm doing right now. You don't have to get a Ph.D. to do this thing. You just buy a computer program and... Uh, <laughs> Type it in. This is the only other verse in the New Testament where a form of anapleirao and the word hysterima come together. This is very important. So here's the question. What did Paul mean when he said Epaphroditus completed what was lacking in the ministry of the Philippians to Paul? What was missing? They had money. They had love. Well, I'm going to read the answer from a hundred-year-old commentary, just so you'll know somebody else thinks what I think. Namely, the commentary by Vincent on Philippians. This is an amazing statement 
to, and he's not even thinking in Colossians 1.24. He didn't make the connection at all, but he made it in my mind. Quote, the gift to Paul was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking and what would have been gratifying to Paul and the church alike was the church's presentation of this offering in person. This was impossible, and Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry. So, in Philippi, they had money, they had love, they had affection, they wanted to minister it to the Apostle Paul. One thing was missing, connection. Getting their love, getting their money, getting their sacrifice in person to Paul. And he supplied what was lacking. And that's exactly what Colossians 1.24 means, I believe. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Christ died for the nations at a point in history. And he rose from the dead and he is now at the Father's right hand until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. One thing is missing in this great accomplishment of salvation. The connection with those for whom he died. And he has ordained that you do it. That the Apostle Paul do it and he made in his own life a paradigm for us. And the paradigm is suffering. Don't miss this now. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, that is my torn flesh, my beaten flesh, my tired flesh, my weary flesh, my discouraged flesh, I complete the sufferings of Christ by extending those sufferings in my sufferings to those for whom those sufferings were experienced. This is the way God means for the Great Commission to be done. The Great Commission will only be finished by suffering. That's all. It will only be finished by suffering. Now, you may ask, well, that does not sound like gain. But most of you aren't saying that right now because you remember the context of yesterday's message. To live is Christ and to what is gain? To die is gain. And so is the suffering that leads up to death. This slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. It's all gain. I heard people praying, this is a heavy message, to call students to suffer and to martyrdom. I think his burden 
is light and his yoke is easy even when he says if you lose your life for my sake in the gospels you save it so this is not a contradiction from anything i've said paul says note the word i rejoice in my sufferings i was at trinity seminary when I was writing that green book, Let the Nations Be Glad, just holding up in a room, and I heard that J. Oswald Sanders was in chapel one day. Great old man. He was 89 years old. He's dead now. Went to be with Jesus. And I wanted to sneak in the back and listen to him, so I snuck in, and he was talking about missions. He was 89 years old, and he said that he had uh, written a book a year since he was 70. I thought, wow. Life begins at 70. Isn't that great? And then he told a story about an evangelist in India. And I just appealed to him as my authority for this story because I wrote it down as I heard it. A poor itinerant evangelist came to a village. And he was tired and he had walked all day, bare feet. And he thought I'd rest. I could rest or I could go in and... And share the gospel. And so he went in and he stood in the little village square and he preached the gospel for all he was worth. And they mocked him. And uh, he went out of town discouraged. He was dog tired. He fell asleep under a tree. And at dusk, he woke up suddenly and the whole village, it looked like, were around him. And the chief men of the village were standing over him and he didn't know what was going to happen and the head man in the village said, we came out to see what happened to you. And when we saw your bloody feet, we assumed you must be a holy man and that you would care enough to come at that expense to share what you said. And we thought we better come ask you to tell us or we better ask you to tell us again. Now. That's just an illustration of Colossians 1.24. In my sufferings, I complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. His suffering was bloody feet, a long day's journey, a discouragement after the first attempt at evangelism. And as he lay there, they saw the price and what they saw was evidence. They saw some evidence in the suffering that something must be real here. Something going on here. This man is not just opting for worldly comforts to get us this message. Last, uh, was it two weeks ago? was the fifth anniversary of the kidnapping of these men. Dave Mankins, Mark Rich, Rick Teninoff pitched their wives who've been living for five years without their husbands. I'm sure their kids growing up without their dads for five years. All the evidence I wrote to my senator a year ago and said, would you please check into this? And, and all the evidences are that they're alive. 
but they may not stay alive. And uh, these, women's give, these women give their testimony, strength and God's grace. They look just like you. They look just like you. Same kind of haircuts and collars and shirts. And some of you are going to be in this situation in 10 years. You're going to be held captive somewhere. This is not an interruption in God's purposes. This is a strategy. God has a strategy here. Don't attribute these things to Satan alone. In Acts 9.16, God said to Ananias as he was to go and recruit Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So my call to you this morning is... You hear this, those of you who care about something important in your life. I will show you how much you must suffer. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, the martyrs under the altar are crying out, How long, how long, O God, until you vindicate our blood? And the answer comes back like this. This is verse 11 of Revelation 6. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants. Now, listen carefully. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Rest until the number of the martyrs is complete. God has a number. And some of you are in it. And I thank you for listening to me. And I want you to embrace this. The call to missions is a call to suffer. We complete the afflictions of Christ in our flesh by presenting the afflictions of Christ in our afflictions to those for whom he died. That's the strategy for the Muslim world. There is no such thing as a closed country if you believe what I'm just saying. Every January... In the International Bulletin of Missionary Research, there's this awesome page of statistics. In line 27, average Christian martyrs per year, 1998, 163,000 this year will die. If that sounds odd to you, it's because Wheaton is a dream world. It's Disneyland. This is an academic Disneyland. I went here. I'm glad I went here, President Lifton. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I'm glad he presides over this four-year place where in this place where... 
yeah, you've got your suffering. I hear them in the prayers. But there are 163,000 people this year who will die for Jesus. Well, I'm going to close by a reference to one of my heroes and I hope one of yours. Um, all five of them, perhaps. The Alka Indians, Jim Elliott. I lived in Elliott Hall. I lived in St. Hall. I ran around on McCulley Field. Those, those names should mean something to you, right? Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, all died. They sat in Pierce Chapel. They sat where you sit. They heard messages like this, and they said, yes. Just read what they've written. Yes. Now, Steve Saint, and this is my closing illustration. Steve Saint wrote this article. This is, these are pages from Christianity Today. Those of you who were here two years ago when I came remember me closing like this. Because I'm so moved by this, it's almost overwhelming to me. Steve Saint lives in Minnesota where I live. And his father, Nate Saint, died, was killed when he was a boy. He's gone back. He's done the research to figure out what happened. Did it have to happen? What went on? And he, in this article, which you can read in CT, uncovers intrigue at that moment beyond what anybody knew was going on. So strange was the intrigue in the tribe that he concludes with this sentence. I underlined it in red, pink. He said, As they described their recollections... Now, this is the son of a martyr talking. As they described their recollections... It occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing, that's the name of the little sandy place where they all died with nine-foot spears in their bodies, how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing took place at all. It is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside the divine intervention of God. I cannot explain the death of my father apart from divine intervention. God killed my dad. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And it's a strategy. It's a strategy. To show the nations in your flesh what Jesus did for them. We don't just say the gospel. We show the gospel. Let's pray. Now, you need to run to class, most of you probably. But the band is going to play when we're done. And if you want to stay and, and deal with God, they're real happy to sing and help you by just keeping our attention focused. I understand most of you must leave, but I just want to make sure those of you who, who are hearing the call of God right now to give your life away, if that's required, 
would deal with God, not run. Or if you need to go, carve out some time today. Walk out in the rain if you must. Get alone and say to God, whatever the cost, I am yours. Father, I commend this student body to you. Would you come? And would you call? And would you show them that to live is Christ and to die is gain for the nations? Through Christ I pray. Amen.